everyone and welcome back to the Genie Podcast. If you are new around here, my name is Selma and I am the host of the Genie. And the Genie is a podcast where we talk about everything to do with science and genetics in the hope that we can make it fun and interesting for people that don't necessarily have an interest in these fields. So now that we've got our introductions out of the way, I wanted to introduce you to today's guest. Now, I have had the pleasure of working with and speaking to and being mentored by Dr. Eric DeWall, who was my genetics and cancer biology professor at Suffolk University in Boston, where I go to uni. And today we managed to get Dr. DeWall on the show and it was such an amazing conversation. I really, really appreciate this guy. He is amazing and I hope that you guys will benefit from his expertise on cancer biology. Today's episode is so interesting and really fun if I do say so myself. So please stick around if that sounds like something you're interested in and let's get started. Hi, Dr. DeWall, and welcome to The Genie. We are beyond excited to have you on the show today. So how have you been coping with everything going on at the moment? Well, it's been a long haul. I mean, we're what, almost a year into it. So, you know, it's weird what we can all adapt to. Uh, my wife and I are, are still in our apartment. She works kind of in our living room. I'm in, I'm in the bedroom right now. So, I mean, we've kind of adapted and, you know, we keep pushing on. Um, I wish things were different. I wish, you know, I got to talk to you in person uh, this past semester about cancer biology related things, but we do our best. And so just like everybody else, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, it's pretty hectic out there at the moment. Yeah, yeah. You keep on thinking, you know, when is it going to get better? When is it going to get better? My sort of optimistic self thinks that the better days are getting closer every day. So that's, that's at least what I keep telling myself. Yeah, for sure. So Dr. Dewall, I already introduced you a little bit in our opening, but could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with cancer biology at Suffolk? Oh, sure. So uh, my sort of track to cancer biology, like many people started quite young, I got interested in science, I always wanted to do something in science, wasn't sure what. So went into uh, college, uh, university, uh, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, go horns. And basically I was a biology major. Initially I thought I was gonna be a field biologist and work sort of in the forest, watching different organisms and studying sort of evolution or something like that. But I fell in love with the lab. And so once I got to my senior year, I loved the lab and I knew that I wanted to do something, but I wasn't sure what. Um, So I decided to then take those skills into a laboratory technician position, which is what I think many biology majors do. It's probably the easiest way you can kind of make money using your degree right out of college. Um, And once I was in there for a while, I knew that I, I wanted to go back into a graduate level program. And because I was really sort of considering, you know, if I wanted to go into uh, something like genetic counseling or if I wanted to go into um, a PhD program. So while I was doing my master's, I was introduced to this field called epigenetics, which I don't know if you've talked about this with your listeners. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a really cool field of genetics where it's really how the environment and our DNA kind of interact and how chemical modifications in our DNA kind of control the expression of genes. I fell in love with that. I wanted that to be my life. Um, And so I did the best thing I could. I I joined the PhD program 
and specifically joined a lab that dealt with epigenetics. And so as I was learning about epigenetics and you know genetics in general, I got my PhD in molecular biology. My specialty was in in vitro fertilization, but I was always crisscrossing with cancer because one of the things with IVF babies is they have basically a, a 60 fold uh, increase in a particular type of cancer called Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. Now that's not to say it's rampant in IVF, you know, in the, the normal population, it's something like one in 25,000 and with IVF babies, it's one in 6,000. So a huge increase, but still quite rare. And so I started learning a lot about cancer then. And basically when I got to my research career at the University of Pennsylvania, I started to get to this point where I was edging away from research and really got more interested into teaching. So that led me, as you know, to Suffolk University. I basically packed up all of my research gear. My wife was doing a, uh, a postdoc in this uh, small university. I'm not sure if you heard of it. It's called Harvard. Um, <laughs> located in the Boston area. So we were, we were long distance relationship, me and my wife for three and a half years. So yeah, as if any of you have ever experienced this, it is not good, uh, not fun. It's not something that you get used to. So I propelled myself into a teaching career, got a position at Suffolk. The person that had been teaching cancer biology, much to my uh, luck, actually left uh, Suffolk and took a different teaching position. So right when I found that out, I went to my chair's department and asked very nicely if I could start teaching cancer biology. She said yes, and the rest is history. That's actually really interesting. Thank you for sharing. Okay, so this week was Cancer Bio Week at the Genie, and we've been talking about things like the hallmarks of cancer, some fun facts, and we also looked at some of the lab work and treatments that go into cancer research. But I wanted to start off simply and ask you, our expert, the fundamental question, which is, what is cancer? So cancer, it, it's actually... a it seems like a relatively easy question, but it's very difficult to answer because, I mean, the one thing that tricks people up about cancer, it is, is extremely complicated. Yeah. When we think about cancer, as you know, it's not just one disease. It's literally over a hundred different diseases. These cancers arise using different mechanisms. They divide using different mechanisms. And because of this wide variety and the different types of cancer, each type of cancer is almost in a way its own individual disease how we yeah. treat it, how we do surgery, how we look at it. It's quite different. And so what is cancer? I would say it's a very complicated family of diseases. That's a great answer. I wanted to address that question first because I think it's important to understand what we're talking about from the start. I mean, we all have some type of connection to cancer. And even if we don't, we know it as this type of like malevolent disease and rightly so, because I mean, it is very daunting. And sometimes that in itself deters us from asking more questions about it. And then we're like, okay, but what is it exactly? So thank you for clarifying that for us. Okay, so my next question is, what makes cancer so devious? Obviously, there's a lot that goes into this. But for our listeners that want to be cancer bio experts for the day, what do you think makes cancer so scary? I mean, I think, you know, you, you touched on some of it. It's, it's so widespread and how it affects so many different people. One of the other things that I think we all kind of experience is, you know, it arises spontaneously. Um, it happens, you know, in old people predominantly, but sometimes it also arises in children. Sometimes it arises in completely healthy people that are just going throughout their day and all of a sudden they have a headache and then it spirals down into, into something very, very serious. The other thing that I think is, is really intimidating about cancer is, you know, despite all of these huge advancements 
that have been made in cancer biology, there are still many different cancers out there that just aren't very treatable. You know, if you get pancreatic cancer, I mean, I think that the statistics are really intimidating. Even right now with pancreatic cancer, I was, I was looking at this earlier, it's about 5% of the, uh, the patients basically are able to survive outside of five years. All right. And so statistics like that are intimidating. And so I think, you know, it being around all the time and it being able to just arise quickly and spontaneously, even to the healthiest of all of us is really, really scary. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I personally think that it's the way cancer can cause so much cellular damage. I mean, like P53, for example, and for those of you listening that don't know what it, what it is, it's a protein that essentially is like a tumor suppressor gene, which means that it regulates cell division. So if cancer can get its hands on shutting that down, then we're in a lot of trouble. How many hallmarks was it that could be achieved by mutating P53? Four. Yeah, you typically need, you know, six to eight to start becoming cancerous. And so it really is a kind of a one stop shop. And, And one of the most common, as you know, genes mutated in cancers. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy that it allows you to get like halfway there to all of the hallmarks that are needed for cancer. So Dr. Duol, my next question for you is something that I know a lot of people outside of cancer biology and research have on their minds. And that is, do you think there will ever be a cure for cancer and why or why not? Yeah, so I get this question a lot, just like everybody else. I have family members that constantly answer me questions. That is a hard question to answer because it goes back in the complexity of of cancer. And so is there going to be a cure for cancer? Well, are you saying, is there going to be a cure for every different type of cancer that's out there? I don't know. It's going to take a while if it does happen. There is some good news though. Is there a cure for some types of cancers? Absolutely correct. Um, You know, a classic great example is testicular cancer. So 50 years ago, you know, anybody that got testicular cancer, basically 90% of them um, died within 10 years. We basically have flipped that in the last 50 years. The treatment protocols are so good now that essentially only 5% of people die from testicular cancer. Right. And so, you know, is it cured? No, not exactly. You know, if people come in with testicular cancer at a very late stage, then treatment options are limited. But most of the people that have that type of cancer don't really have a lot to worry about. They live long, full lives. But, you know, there's other things like pancreatic cancer where no matter what we seem to throw at it, it becomes a bit resistant. And so some of these uh, types of cancers that are the ones that are really hard to treat are typically the ones that are hard to operate on you know, pancreatic cancer, it's hard to get to the pancreas without damaging other organ systems, brain cancers, it's hard to do surgery in the brain. So those are going to be the ones that are sort of going to be everlasting problems. I think what we've done sort of so far is kind of take the low hanging fruit. And you know, now we're kind of working on developing really good treatments for some of those other more complicated cancers that have been evading us for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that touches on something that I wanted to mention as well. I mean, after taking your cancer bio class at Suffolk, I kind of realized that cancer is really devious, much more than I previously thought. And I mean, you can target it to infinity and it'll still find ways to multiply within us. But the good news is, like Dr. Duol said, there are so many treatments available. So could you tell us a little bit about some of the most promising therapies for cancer, like targeted therapy, immunotherapy, cancer vaccines and my personal favorite, CAR T-cells. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's always a good thing when you're teaching cancer biology to sort of take a step and just say, you know, people are fighting back. And, you know, one thing that we talked about in cancer biology is these hallmarks. And, you know, for the listeners that are, are sort of new to this, you know, hallmarks basically mean that in order for a normal cell to go to a cancer cell, you have to take on many different characteristics. And so while that can seem daunting because we're sort of constructing this evil cell, it also means that these cells have vulnerabilities. And what we can do is we can target those hallmarks and we can take those hallmarks away. So then you're converting that cancer cell back to a normal cell. And so that's what the cancer biologists have really been doing for really the last 20 to 30 years is basically coming up with targeted therapies where we're going to go in and specifically rip away one of those hallmarks. And so that's the good news. What, you know, has me really optimistic about the, uh, the future of cancer is, you know, what we talked about a lot in our class called personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. Have you gone over personalized medicine? Is this yeah, like- we talked about it in our last episode. Perfect. And so one thing that we know about personalized medicine is that when we can match up an effective treatment to the genetics of the tumor, that treatment's going to be much, much more effective. And, you know, you hear about this stuff all the time, right? Like we come up with a a new cancer drug and we treat it on a wide variety of patients and it works in 60% of the patients. All right. So why does that happen? You know, why are we, why is that working in 60% and not the other 40% answering those questions is what's really going to allow us to sort of use the drugs we have more effectively. And so I really think that, you know, as we're sort of, developing these targeted therapies and marrying that to personalized medicine, you're really going to sort of see the better outcomes and and better quality of life because, you know, people are going to have more tailored protocols and that's really going to allow them to sort of get a lot better results. Yeah. Other thing that we have to acknowledge, of course, is the CAR T cells. And, you know, this is probably the most exciting thing that's happened um, in the cancer field in a long time. And basically what this is, is reprogramming the immune cells to basically target a specific tumor in the body. And what's really uh, great about this technology is they've been using it on humans and they've been having lots of good results. It's really cool, actually, when you think that we got to a point that we can do all of that. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's how science always works. You know, it's always small incremental steps. You'll take one step back, then a couple of steps forward. And over time, you know, we can accomplish lots and lots of things. Science is hard. Cancer is even harder. And so it does take time. For sure. So do you think that these new therapies, uh, particularly with targeted therapies, could replace things like chemotherapy and radiation therapy? I actually don't. Um, I think what you're going to sort of see in the future is um, basically taking those targeted therapies and combining them with radiation therapy and and chemotherapy. I know that, you know, we typically think of chemotherapy and radiation therapy as these sort of blunt, uh, almost archaic types of treatment, but they are very, very effective in in treating lots of of cancers. When when I was talking about testicular cancer, um, there's no magical drug there. Um, Testicular cancer is just a combination of surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. And that's how they can get to that 99% survival rate. And so I don't think that, you know, you'll be seeing a disappearance of chemotherapy. What I think you're going to see is using it more effectively, having, you know, these particular chemotherapy, not only the the drugs, but the doses that they need to sort of maximize effectiveness and minimize sort of toxicity. I think it's great that they can um, like increase the efficacy of 
new therapies while also using it in conjunction with things that we're used to, like chemotherapy and radiation therapy and surgery. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I learned that was really sort of saddening, I mean, one of the many things you learn that's saddening about cancer biology is a lot of times when um, people come in for a particular type of cancer, you know, the oncologist will say, well, I'm going to give you these three different chemotherapy drugs. And then, you know, they give them to them and they, they monitor the growth of the tumor and they say, oh, that's not working. You know, now I'm going to give you these other three. And then they say, oh, this is working a lot better. And so what we really need to do is get to that, you know, second three right up at the beginning, right? We need to, mm-hmm. we need to know exactly what combination is going to be most effective for this patient right from day one. And right now, I mean, we're still sort of, it's kind of like a, just a sort of choosing different drugs, seeing which sticks the best and what works the best and and we need to do better definitely a while ago we asked you guys to send in your cancer questions so that we could address them on today's episode dr dewall are you ready for these amazing questions i'm ready throw them at me all right let's do it so the first question that we got was are we really close to some new crazy treatments for cancer or an eternal cure and this was asked by yusuf so eternal cure, probably not. Are we on the brink of, of discoveries? Absolutely. So the CAR T cells that we were just talking about, there are lots of labs working on that. It's whenever you have lots of labs working on it, you have lots of smart people that are working together. And that's where real progress is made. And so one of the things that we talked about in our class was how it's working, but it needs to work better. And so one of the big things that they're having a problem with is that they can get these immune cells into the body and these immune cells will target a tumor and the immune cells will start killing the tumor. One of the problems that they have is sort of the immunological memory or the sort of getting these immune cells to really provide long-term protection, right? We're not there yet. And so one thing people are thinking about is, you know, well, maybe we need to take these hematopoietic stem cells and put the car, the the receptor in those, and then that would give them more long-term immunity. That's just harder to do. Those cells are, are a little bit more rare. And so it's, you know, with these types of questions, it's always to sort of put your finger on, on what the next big thing is going to be. But, you know, I do think one big advancement that we'll see in, in the next five years is sort of long-term protection of, of the CAR T cells. And that, you know, as your listeners have probably learned, when you're talking about a CAR T cell, you can really target any type of tumor. And this is a, a drug that's going to really minimize the amount of side effects for, for cancer treatment. Yeah, I think this is a really good question, actually. You know, we spoke about some different therapies like immunotherapy and CAR T cells and vaccines and even like diagnostics like liquid biopsies on our page last week. And these are all treatments that are changing the way we look at cancer. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, to go back to the liquid biopsy, a huge thing about cancer is not just treatment. It's also detection. Yeah. Right? Being able to detect the cancer very, very early on is, is key into sort of getting uh, good treatment outcomes. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about is, is this sort of potential for the liquid biopsy to be kind of a, a part of like an annual clinical exam where they're just like, okay, well, we did a, a liquid biopsy. You know, there are no cancer cells in there. So you appear to be, you know, and do it like every 10 years or so. If yeah. we could do that, you know, and you can detect, you know, if you can detect pancreatic cancer really early, then the treatment outcomes are, are really good. But the problem with pancreatic cancer is it's largely asymptomatic. And so it's not detected until it's stage three or stage four. Um, so I think, you know, treatment advancements are good, but detection advancements are also good. And when we combine those two things together, that's when things are really going to start heating up and we're getting a lot better news and cancer prognoses. 
For sure. Our next question is from Abir, who is my mom. Shout out mama. <laughs> she was asking if we could do like Angelina Jolie and know if we get breast cancer before we actually get it. And I think this question is referring to genetic testing, specifically the BRCA tests. And first, I think we should talk about the BRCA tests and what they uncover. Do you personally think that getting genetic testing and then doing something preventative like a double mastectomy is necessary? Um, I think that these types of things are personal choices. Um, mm -hmm. I think that having the knowledge gives the person the power to sort of chart their own path. Because when you don't have the knowledge, then these surprises can arise and then your options are limited. And so, um, you know, I would never presume to tell somebody what kind of surgery is best for them. Because when you're talking about, you know, the breast removal or the removal of the ovaries, these are very personal decisions. There's lots of different factors that go into them. And so, you know, I think it's important to say that when you're talking about somebody that's positive for a pathogenic BRCA1 mutation, their cancer risk goes up, you know, five to six fold, you know, you go from uh, a three to 4% chance of cancer up to a 70%. And so if, you know, you, you remove the, the breasts and the ovaries, your chance of cancer drops back down to the normal rate. And so that is a, a sort of a powerful um, option for people to have, but the choice is, is really up to them. You know, I think, I do think it's important for, for people to get tested. I think it's important for them to get meaningful information from genetic counselors or, or or um, medical professionals. I'm not a huge fan in people getting, you know, a BRCA1 positive in the privacy of their own home and having to deal with that themselves. I don't think that that's the best way to deal with that information, but I think getting the information and being able to ask questions with a healthcare professional is, is the best way to go for that individual so they can chart the path that's, that's right for them. Would you trust a BRCA screening or a BRCA genetic test? Because that was also something that was in the question slot that I got. Yeah, absolutely. The genetic testing for um, these BRCA mutations, they, this isn't new. They've been doing this for multiple decades and they're very, very good at it. They have multiple safeguards in place to make sure that if they tell you you have a pathogenic mutation, they're, they're going to be pretty, pretty certain of it. Okay, cool. Thank you for confirming that. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Um, there's lots of um, sort of apprehension about that because there's so much value that's placed. We can't have mistakes. And I will say that, you know, especially when you're, you're, you're doing this through a medical professional, they're going to go to a really trusted company. And, and so that's why, you know, it's better to do it through a clinical setting than it is through one of these direct consumer tests like 23andMe. Yeah, we talked about that last week as well. So we got another question. And this person was asking, can lichen sclerosis become cancerous? And how do you treat it? I looked this up the other day. And for those of you that are wondering what it is, it's basically a condition that causes patches on genital areas, and it can cause cancer, actually, it can cause squamous cell carcinomas, which are caused by epithelial cells that creates a protective barrier. I'm not a doctor, so if you have any concerns, please speak to a licensed health professional about this. But it seems as though it is a recurring condition that can be managed using creams and ointments. But again, that's just from my research. In females, actually, I found that taking the human papilloma virus vaccine can protect against uh, vulvar cancer, which is common when lichen sclerosis turns cancerous. 
And I also read that it's common in postmenopausal women. And I was curious, Dr. Dewal, if postmenopausal women that are at high risk of developing lichen sclerosis-induced cancer also have high risks of getting breast cancer. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So the, the, the disease that you're talking about, it's the first time I've ever heard of it. And so as you, were, yeah, as you were reading off of the information that you have, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I've never heard of this. And so I'm learning today for the first time about this. You know, the only thing I, I can add is a lot of times there are these other ailments that can, can promote cancer through, through two, two mechanisms. One is through chronic inflammation. So, you know, you get an infection in, a, in an area of your body and the body can't clear it. So what your system is basically doing is promoting lots of cell proliferation and increased cell proliferation can lead into the induction of uh, spontaneous mutations. The other way is sometimes these infectious agents will actually secrete different types of proteins that will essentially interfere with human protein function. And so it's essentially serving like a mutation because it's bringing down, you know, the function of tumor suppressor genes. That's what happens with HPV. I hope our answer helps. Thank you to the, to the listener that submitted that question. It was very interesting to look into. Yeah. Thank you for teaching me about it. That was awesome. <laughs> so the last question we have is from Abir again, who asked, how do we prevent cancer and what changes do we need to make to our lifestyle, diet, exercise, etc.? That's a great question. And I think we need to address the elephants in the room, diet and cancer. Would you like to break the hearts of our listeners today, Dr. DeWall? Oh, God, do I have to do <laughs> it again? It's so painful to do it every time. All right. So here's a couple of things about diet and cancer. And granted, I don't do this lightly. Don't get mad at the messenger. I'm from Texas. Um, so I myself have had to sort of rethink uh, some of my dietary choices. But one of the most painful things about diet and cancer that I learned when I was teaching cancer biology is, of course, the, um, the association between red meat and cancer, right? And so anytime you're eating red meat, the red in that color comes from heme iron. And so when heme iron goes into our bodies, it's modified by our bodies to form what we call a DNA addict. And so DNA addicts, I don't know if we've discussed this on the show or not, but DNA addicts are basically chemicals that associate with the DNA and can promote mutations. So anytime you're eating red meat, you're digesting heme iron and that heme iron in a way is carcinogenic because of the ways that our bodies modify it, okay? So what um, Sam is probably referring to, what pains me the most is barbecuing red meat. So if red meat is carcinogenic, barbecuing red meat is much more carcinogenic. And the reason why is because of a spontaneous chemical reaction. When you have creatine, which is a chemical that's associated with muscles and a lot of amino acid, which is just protein, it combines to form what's called a heterocyclic amine which can also form a DNA addict. Now, what I always tell my students and, and also my friends and family is that this doesn't mean you can't eat red meat or barbecued meat, all right? When you're eating barbecued meat, that, that char that is so delicious, especially on things like ribs, that char is where all the carcinogens are. And so grilling red meat is bad, but having it every once in a while is fine. I think the key thing to tell your, your, your listeners is if you're eating barbecued ribs or steak every day, you might want to stop, right? It's not, yeah. not the best healthy choice to make. And what about exercise? Could that help reduce cancer risk as well? 
Absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest health uh, benefit you're going to get from exercise is limiting um, obesity. So obesity is associated with lots of different cancers, colon, prostate, breast, endometrium, esophagus, liver. So a good diet and good exercise reduces all of those things. The other thing about uh, exercise, it reduces stress. And when you can reduce stress, that helps with chronic inflammation as well. So by basically having those, those two different things, reducing obesity and reducing stress, exercise can help with, like I said, about eight or nine different cancers. Yeah. Okay. Now I think I'm going to lose all of my listeners. Thank you, Dr. Duval. <laughs> but you guys asked, you guys asked, I'm just answering the questions. Another thing to remember about that bacon, pro- when you have red meat and then process that red meat, like with bacon, that also increases carcinogenicity. Again, I am sorry. I also <laughs> am. I love bacon cheeseburgers. All right. And so I've had to sort of rethink how often I eat them at this point. In my yeah. Life. That also applies to things like salami and like deli meats as well. Right? Yes. And just so we are, uh, you know, to further the pain for your listeners, even grilling chicken or even grilling fish also can make heterocyclic amines, not as many as red meat, but anytime you're grilling meat, you're making those char marks on there, heterocyclic amines are accumulating. Also salt, cigarettes, and alcohol. So really like you can't enjoy anything. You can enjoy it, just not every day. (laughs) Not every day, you guys. Not every day. Not every day. So I think that the last question um, about uh, leach and sclerosis, where we mentioned it's common to develop cancer in postmenopausal women, also raises a good point about postmenopausal women and cancer. And of course, breast cancer is something that a lot of women worry about and is so widely studied in the field of cancer biology, as we know. Could you, Dr. DeWall, tell us a little bit about breast cancer and what influences breast cancer incidence in postmenopausal women? Sure. So, um, you know, key thing to understand about breast cancer is oftentimes it's influenced by hormones, specifically estrogen. And so there are two different sources of estrogen in women. The primary source, um, especially in women in the reproductive uh, age of their life, is the ovaries. Ovaries secrete estrogen. They basically promote all these secondary um, sex characteristics as well as the menstrual cycle. And so as women age, they're secreting eggs. And once the ovaries are basically empty of eggs, the ovaries no longer secrete estrogen. Right, that's sort of what the classic situation is with menopause. It's the body reacting to the ovaries not secreting estrogen anymore. And so this doesn't mean that postmenopausal women don't have estrogen. They still have estrogen. It's now just being secreted from their uh, fat cells. And so the key thing with postmenopausal women and breast cancer, the bridge there is typically obesity. Because one thing that has been discovered is that the amount of estrogen in your body is related to the risk of breast cancer. The reason why is because estrogen promotes cell division. More estrogen, more cell division, more cancer. And so when you have an obese postmenopausal woman, that's basically chronically high uh, levels of estrogen. And so breast cells are gonna be dividing more. They're also of older age. And so at that point, it's highly likely that they would have already accumulated one or two spontaneous mutations. So that high estrogen level, that's what's basically allowing those cells to get that third, fourth, and fifth hallmark to make that final sort of conversion to the cancer cell. 
Thank you, Dr. DeWalt. So when I was researching and planning for this episode, I couldn't help but be imbued by the errors of existence. This is going to take a very philosophical turn. I'm just warning all of you right now. I feel like since cancer is a disease that occurs with the accumulation of mutations, we're the perfect hosts for it. I mean, replication errors that build up over time make us ourselves cancer risks. I mean, to exist is to allow cancer to come in and ruin everything your body has been trying to protect against. And talking about that reminds me of a passage from Siddhartha Mukherjee's Emperor of All Maladies. And for those of you wanting to learn more about cancer, definitely read this book. It's amazing. Great book. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, so the line goes, if we as a species are the ultimate product of a Darwinian selection, then so too is this incredible disease that lurks inside us. It's a melancholic paradox, really, and it makes you aware of your own mortality, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, one of the ways that I've sort of always kind of looked at at cancer is it, it sort of is the ultimate population control. I mean, as you said, to wake up every day and live, you're increasing your likelihood of cancer. And so, you know, one of the sort of uh, philosophical sort of things that have been made about cancer is that it's going to hit all of us if we live long enough. And so I think that, you know, it might be one of the embedded, you know, dare to say advantages of, of cancer because we don't, we should not be living forever. You know, we need to clear out the way for the next generation because there's a finite amount of resources we need to clear ourselves out so, you know, the next generation can, you know, have all the benefits that we have. And so, you know, despite, you know, whatever sort of medical advancements that we make, I think that, you know, cancer is always going to be there to sort of keep our mortality in check. And as dark as that might be, it is important for the survival and continuity of human life on this planet. And relating to that question, Dr. Duol, I asked you about this early on in the semester, but I'm sure that a lot of our listeners also have this in mind. If cancer is such a horrible illness, then why hasn't evolution wiped it out yet? And yeah, so it's, it's a great question, especially when you see it in so many people. And so the evolutionary answer to that is that, you know, a lot of times people get cancer after their reproductive years. And so that's why, you know, you have things like germline mutations that persist in the human population because, you know, before genetic testing, people would never know that they had these um, mutations. Even now with genetic testing, we're typically not finding them, and especially in women, until they're 45, 50. I mean, one of the most painful things that you can ever watch is, you know, a genetic counseling um, session when young women discover that they've got, you know, very pathogenic BRCA1 mutations. It's a life-changing event. But like I said, typically that happens, you know, later on in life where it's already been passed down. So maybe with the expansion of genetic testing, we'll, we'll see a decrease in, in cancer uh, in, in the human population. But it's really early to tell if that's going to have any effect. Early detection is key, guys. Early detection, guys. Go to your, your doctors and if they say get a genetic test, then, then find out. Because there's, you know, the other thing to... Um, that's also important to realize is that some people get so intimidated with the information. And so, you know, the one thing I always um, emphasize to people is that information gives you the power. You know, it gives you the power to, to chart your, your path, whereas not having that information, it, it can give you surprises and limit your options. Yeah, for sure. It's best to know when you've got something at like stage one versus at stage four when you can't really do anything about it and then don't have that many treatment options. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, one thing is I, I really emphasize, like knowing means that you've got all these ways that you can take care of it. You know, not knowing means that all those ways are kind of taken away from you. And that's, that's not a good thing. 
Yeah. Okay. So I feel like I've put a bit of a damper on our listeners <laughs> up until this point, but I'm hoping to turn that around with our final question. And that is, what do you look forward to in the field of cancer biology? And what excites you about potential treatments and diagnostics and why? So um, I am very optimistic. You know, I think we're going to be making lots of leaps. And, you know, one of the things that I think is most important is how we're seeing this reduction in cost for genome sequencing. So, you know, we're, we're getting close, if we haven't approached there already, the, to the $1,000 genome, where we can sequence, you know, anybody's genome for $1,000. We're right at the cusp of that. As we sequence more and more genomes, we get more and more genetic information. And I think understanding all of that genetic information is what's really going to allow us to get to that personalized medicine. You know, I don't, I don't think it's going to be CAR T cells that, that cure all of our, our cancer woes. What I think it, it's going to be basically the effort of using all of these tools that we have and just using them in a more effective way. I think that when you combine that with all these great things with early detection, you know, we talked about the liquid biopsy. Another thing that I'm really excited about is how CTs and MRIs are becoming more common. You know, one thing that's really frustrating anytime you're, you're learning about treatments is how certain treatments basically are available depending on what zip code you live in. All right. And that, that's not fair. All right. Anytime we have a situation like that, we need to do better. We need to fix that. And that's what I, I like about the, the CT, um, I'm sorry, CT-PET scan, the combined scan that really gives us early detection. That's becoming more available to lots of different hospitals. And if we can get early detection in widespread early detection, not just in, in certain zip codes, then I really think we can start seeing change. And I'm starting to see that. Um, and that, that gets me optimistic about, you know, getting all this good options out there for everybody to use. And so together we can start beating this thing. That's amazing. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. So thank you, Dr. Dewall. That's all the time that we had for today. Thank you for joining us on The Genie. It was such a pleasure to have you here today. It was a lot of fun. You're very good at this. If you ever need me back on to talk about something else, just, just reach out and I'll be here. I definitely will. <laughs> this was fun. Like I had a good time. So definitely, yeah, reach out. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners who listened along and have become cancer biology experts for the day. I don't think it's fair that only I'm granted this title because I took Dr. DeWall's class. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it because we have shared his expertise on the genie. As always, make sure you guys subscribe on our website www.thegenie.com so you can get the latest information on episode releases, guests, and much more. You can also find us on Instagram Instagram, the.genie, and on your favorite streaming services like Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. And this has been your host, Selma, and you are watching the Genie Podcast. Bye!